Father, thank you that we don't just come to church to hear people pray. We don't just come to church to sing, but we come to actually talk to the maker of the universe. And we also come to hear your voice. And Father, that can only happen through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we're just inviting you to speak to us this morning in a way that changes our lives for the better. Thank you that you are a giver of good gifts. May that be very clear as we see this morning the redemption that is available in Bethlehem. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. They heard something that made them set out on a journey. Now, this was a very long journey. There was three of them, and as they began to set out on this journey, they're traveling by day, by night. I don't know the exact route they took, but I imagine that it was about, or looking things up, I think it was about 75 miles, the journey that they went on. And this this journey involved a long descent into a a, a rather um, desolate area of about four thousand five hundred feet. So if you ever climbed a mountain before, that's that's a pretty good hefty descent. And they they descended down into the valley, and then as they were going across the valley, they began to head up the other side. It was about a three thousand seven hundred foot uh, climb on the other side in order to reach. The destination where they had heard that there was something very special that was happening. Now, they had started off with three on this journey. There were three of them that started off, but partway into the journey, that changed. And then there was only two. But they had heard. They had heard that God had visited Bethlehem. And they were on their way to Bethlehem. Now, this wasn't three wise men, and this wasn't some shepherds, but you're going to have to find out a little bit later on who this was. In order to find out, we're going to have to look at the backstory to, to what makes this special, to what makes us know that there is redemption in Bethlehem for you and me this morning, no matter where we've come from, no matter who we are. So open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 19. We've been going through Genesis, and this morning, I just want to warn you, I'm going to share with you a story that I have never heard preached on in my entire life. I've never given a sermon on in my entire life, and you'll probably see why in just a moment. Genesis chapter 19, you remember that we we looked at how God did whatever it took to save Lot and anybody who was willing, who happened to be only Lot and his two daughters, his wife didn't even choose fully to, to follow did whatever it took to save them out of Sodom. He even grabbed them by the hand and he drug them out of Sodom. And, and we're told that this is a, a representation of what God's going to do in the final judgment. That's good news this morning. Because God is in the business of grabbing people by the hand and dragging them if they won't resist into the kingdom. I like a God like that. I don't know about you. But Genesis chapter 19, we're going to pick up this story. Genesis chapter 19 and verse 30. It says this, then Lot went up out of Zor and dwelt in the mountains. Now this is hilarious because you remember when Lot comes and he's drug out of Sodom, what is he told to do? He's told flee to the mountains. And he says, no, I can't flee to the mountains. I'll die if I go to the mountains. Please let me go to this little city over here. And if I go to this city, uh, you could preserve that city and I'll be okay. So he goes to that city. And then he goes to the mountains, like God told him originally. If only I followed God's plan for me at the beginning, rather than 
going the roundabout circuitous route to get there. So he finally goes and he's dwelling in the mountains and his two daughters were with him and he was afraid to dwell in Zoar because he's seeing that they're doing the same thing the Sodomites were doing. They're mistreating people. They're violent. They're, they're, and he's realizing that it's going to be destroyed too. And so he's afraid and he goes into the mountains. And he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Here's Lot, who, you remember how excited he was about the valley uh, of Sodom, and he saw that it was like the Garden of Eden, and he went to dwell there in order to have wealth, prosperity, to live the good life. And he got a little too wrapped up in everything there, and now he's in a cave with nothing, except for he and his two daughters in a cave. But things get worse as you pick up the story. Verse 31, Now the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, And there is no man on the earth to come into us, as is the custom of all the earth. They look around and they say, Sodom and Gomorrah have been destroyed. Zor is going to be destroyed. There is none of our people left. We're we're so tied to Sodom and we're hopeless. There's nothing left. Was this true? No. The rest of the world hadn't been destroyed. There was Abraham. They had cousins who they could go and visit. They, there was a lot of options, but they believed that, that everything that was there was all that mattered to them. And Sodom was destroyed. Their hearts were in Sodom. Verse 32 continues. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Okay, so... So when you don't believe that God has good in store for you, that God has plans for your life. So this is just a word for you. If you're single here this morning and you don't have a spouse and you'd be interested in having a spouse, it is tempting to think there's really not many options. I'm just going to take whatever comes along or I'm just going to. And I just want to tell you this morning, you have a God who has good plans for your life. And it's okay to wait on those plans because it's a lot happier to go with God's plan. It's a lot happier to believe that we have a God who can do the impossible, who has your good in mind. If only they believe that, but instead they say, okay, here's the plan. And they obviously know it's a terrible plan, that their dad wouldn't go along with it, that it's against all the customs. We've got to make our dad drunk, and then we're going to go in and we're going to lie with him. It's a terrible idea. Actually, horrendous. Verse 33, so they made their father drink wine that night and the firstborn went in and lay with her father and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. This is the second time that alcohol is mentioned in the Bible. First time was with Noah. When Noah drinks, plants the vineyard, drinks from his vineyard, and then his sons find him naked and there's that whole shameful event. Second time that alcohol is mentioned in the Bible is here when Lot's daughters make him drunk and go in to him. Um, Alcohol is not looked on very positively throughout the Bible. In fact, Solomon later says, wine is a mocker and strong drink a brawler. Verse 34 continues, it happened on the next day that the firstborn, she doesn't get the picture that this is a bad idea, said to the younger, indeed, I lay with my father last night. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, and you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve the lineage of our father." Now, I've found in my own personal experience that, that there's always some sort of reason that we look to a substance in order to fulfill our lives. I remember being in high school and, and I felt like I didn't know how to socialize well enough with other people and there was uh, some girls that I wanted to impress and I thought, well, maybe, maybe if I started to drink a little bit, 
It would help me loosen up and be a funnier guy and to be able to connect with them more. And that's how it started for me. And it w- went on from there. You find that it usually doesn't just stop there. It usually progresses to more things. Well, hey, it would make me have more fun at school and maybe I'll drink all during the day and pretty soon you've got a problem on your hands. But I have good news for you this morning. If you have a problem on your hands, you've come to the right place because there's redemption in Bethlehem. I'm a living testimony of that. God changes people who make bad choices. God redeems lives that have made bad choices and He turns those around and He gives us a hope and a future. So the older daughter's like, hey, this was brilliant. It worked. Terrible idea. Verse 35 continues though. Then they were, then they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. So I'm just curious right now, just for fun. How many of you have ever heard a sermon on this before in your entire life? Okay. One heard it just this morning at the Spanish group when I was up there. Okay, and I see two others. <laughs> okay. Now I was just curious how, because I personally have not, and I, I've read over this, and, and sometimes I'm tempted to just skip over it. Why is this here? This is, this is grotesque. This is terrible. Why is it here in the Bible? And I want to tell you this morning that I believe it's there because there is redemption where? In Bethlehem. There is redemption in Bethlehem. Verse 36 continues, Thus both the daughters of Lot were with child by their father. Verse 37, the firstborn bore a son and called his name, what is it? Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. Now they think Moab actually means from his father. So it's this, his name basically means that he came from his grandfather, from her father. He's the father of the Moabites to this day. So when you read about Moabites, they would not exist except for this Terrible decision by this older daughter who said, let's make my father drunk so that I can have a child by him. Verse 38 continues, and the younger, she also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the people of Ammon to this day. Now, Patriarchs and Prophets commenting on this, page 167 says, the sinful conducts of Lot's daughters was the result of the evil associations of that vile place. Its moral corruption had become so interwoven to their character that they couldn't distinguish between good and evil. They were so immersed in Sodom that that it just seemed like the right thing. It just seemed like, well, let's just do it. It doesn't matter. Lot's only posterity, the Moabites and Ammonites, were vile, that's really evil, idolatrous tribes, rebels against God, and bitter enemies of his people. You see how what the horrendous results of this one night choice was. Sometimes we think it's not a big deal. It's just one party. It's just one thing. It's not really going to make that big of a deal. But every choice in our life has long-term consequences. And I'm here to tell you that if you've made some bad choices, there's redemption in Bethlehem. There's good news in this story. But before we get there, let's look at the modern-day situation. So I was looking up some statistics about alcohol and drug-related crime statistics. So I, I text my brother, and I asked him. He's a, a, a deputy uh, district attorney up in Placer County near Sacramento. And I asked him, how many crimes do you think are committed related to drugs and alcohol? And he said, at least 85% is a conservative estimate of it. So I looked it up myself, and I did some research on it, and these are the statistics that I found. There's this this uh, survey that they, or, or testing that they did. It's called the Adam 2. They 
tested in 10 different counties around the United States where there were big cities, and every arrestee or, or they, they, they sampled the arrestees and tested whether they were had alcohol in their blood or whether they had some other illicit drug in their in their bloodstream. And it found that those arrestees who tested positive for drugs ranged from 63% in Atlanta, that was on the low side of things, 63%, to 83% in Chicago and Sacramento. So you have 63% in Atlanta, 83% Chicago and Sacramento were under the influence when they made the bad choice to commit a crime. But then you add to that this. Now, I don't know if there's a little bit of overlap between this, but, but the next thing is a survey of actual inmates in state prison and inmates in federal prison. And, and they surveyed them and they said, how many of you committed your crime in order to obtain drugs? Okay? So when they did that, the BJS survey, 17% of state prisoners and 18% of federal prisoners reported they committed crimes in order to obtain drugs. And I'm just thinking if you want to obtain drugs, you may not have drugs in your system yet. So you can add anywhere from maybe up to 17, 18% to 63 to 83%, and you're up to 80 to 95, 100% of crimes. There's so many crimes that are committed because of drugs and alcohol. Then you look at this uh, from the NHTSA report. In 2017, it says an average of one alcohol-impaired driving fatality occurred every 48 minutes in 2017. Every hour, somebody driving because somebody was drinking and driving. And I'm here this morning to say I could have been on that statistic. And I regret those choices that I made. If you've made some choices like that, there's redemption in Bethlehem. There's a God who takes the bad choices of our life and He turns them around and He can transform your heart and your life in such a way that you'll look back on that and it will be the biggest regret of your life. So what about these Ammonites and Moabites? Were they really that terrible? Were they really horrible people? Look at what Moses says, Deuteronomy chapter 23. Moses talking to the children of Israel. And as he talks to them, he says this, An Ammonite or a Moabite shall not enter the assembly of the Lord. Don't even let them come to assemble in the house of God. It's pretty strong words. Even to the tenth generation, none of his descendants shall enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Now, I'm here to tell you this morning, that's not the way our church is going to operate. Our church is here to welcome people to the only place where transformation can happen, and that is Jesus. But this was here for a very good reason. It was there because of the history of the Moabites and the Ammonites and what they actually were doing to the Israelites, and, and, and the type of seduction that was happening through their influence. And they, he said, look, you just got to stay totally separated from them. And don't think that God's neglecting them, because there's actually a place where, where God says, and I gave them the land of Ar, just like I gave you the promised land in bringing you out of Egypt. So God is working for Moabites, as we'll see as we continue on here. But, but he explains why it is that they're not to come into the assembly of the house of Israel. It says, because they did not meet you with bread and water on the road when you came out of Egypt, and because they hired against you Balaam, the son of Beor, from Pethor of Mesopotamia to curse you. Do you remember that story? Okay, so Moab, the king, 
Moab's king was Balak. And Balak hears that the, the, the Israelites are coming. And there's something like two million, if you estimate uh, everything that's, that's listed there. There's about two million of them, and they're coming. And as they're coming, he's like, they are going to lick up all of our water. They're going to eat all of our food. We've got to do something, and I don't want to fight them. There's way too many of them. So what we've got to do is we've got to curse them. And so he calls for Balaam to come, and there's that whole story. But, but Balaam comes, and he has him stand up on this high place. And as Balaam goes to stand up on this high place, seven different times, I think it is, he goes to curse him, and each time a blessing comes out. And that's good news for you this morning, because if there's somebody in your life that, that is trying to sabotage you at work, one of your neighbors that's trying to say bad stuff about you and create problems in your neighborhood. Somebody at school that's trying to create problems for you. Let God take care of it. Because look at what happens. Verse 5. It says, Nevertheless, the Lord your God would not listen to Balaam, but the Lord your God turned the curse into a blessing for you because the Lord your God loves you. God loves you. And people may curse you. They may try to sabotage you. But he will turn that curse into a blessing in your life. If you'll just look to your loving Savior. There is redemption in Bethlehem. Now, look at one of the times specifically. This, this really applies to what we're thinking about in, in this holiday season. Numbers chapter 24 and verse 17, you have Balaam. He's up there on the high place. And as he's prophesying, looking down at this numberless camp of the children of Israel, he says this, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. And we think that may be why the wise men came from the east. Maybe they had somehow read Balaam's prophecy. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. It's the exact opposite of what the king is hoping will happen when he's up there cursing the Israelites. Instead, it's saying, hey, look, they're going to be the ones that are successful because they're following the Messiah, the true God. And there's going to be a star who's going to rise in Bethlehem. There is redemption in Bethlehem. Numbers chapter 25 and verse 1, though, continues on and tells us what happens when his cursings are turned to blessings. And this is why Moses is warning them, look, do not let a Moabite or an Ammonite come anywhere near you. You can't handle it. Verse 1 says, Now Israel remained in Acacia Grove, and the people began to commit harlotry with the women of Moab. Verse 2 continues and says, They invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So you see, they, they sent their attractive women to the camp, and the Israelite men are like, Hey, this is a good deal. I've been in the wilderness a long time. And because of that, they were seduced into joining their worship, into worshiping their gods. So Israel was joined to Baal of Peor. So this is one of the gods that they were worshiping, Baal. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel. Do you see what kind of people they became? They started with this bad choice, a terrible choice to not trust that God could provide in a difficult situation. And as the generations went on, they became worse and worse and worse. And we see that throughout the history, um, that there's good reason why Moses is warning them that they shouldn't allow them into the assembly of the Lord. If only King Solomon had listened to that. Look at 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 7. Then Solomon built a high place to Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem. What? Here you have King Solomon, the wisest king that ever lived. Why would he do this? Well, if you read a few verses earlier, it says not only did he marry Pharaoh's daughter, but he married a woman from Moab. And 
Because of that, he's like, well, she needs a place to worship Chemosh. Let's build a, a, an altar to Chemosh, a, a shrine to Chemosh right here on the hill on the east of Bethlehem. And for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Moses had a reason for saying, hey, look, you, you can't handle this. They're just going to seduce you back into the worship practices and, and into this lifestyle that's going to separate you from me. And I care about you too much to let that happen in your life. Well, if we fast forward on, later on, there's a lot of fighting that goes on between Moab. There really are bitter enemies back and forth between Israel and Judah. And because of those choices that Solomon made, it goes on to say that that's why the kingdom of Israel was divided. You had the, the two tribes and you had the ten tribes. And, and that happened because of the bad choices that Solomon made. Well, then later you have both Israel's and Judah's king decide, okay, the Moabites are coming. They're going to attack us. Let's call for Elisha to help us with this battle. And Elisha says, well, if it wasn't for Jehoshaphat, the king of, it, uh, of Judah, I, I wouldn't even be a part of this. But I'll, I will answer because of this. And so he, he gives them the answer of what they should do. And as they begin in this battle, they're having success in the battle. And then you see how horrendous the worship practices of Moab had become. Because in verse, chap, 2 Kings chapter 3, verses 26 and 27, it says, And when the king of Moab saw that the battle was too fierce for him, he took his eldest son, who would have reigned in his place, and offered him as a burnt offering upon the wall. I mean, that's like as terrible as humanity can become. To kill your own child, to to... To, to appease some angry God who will only bless you if you make a big enough sacrifice for Him. Having finally been be- become a parent, I cannot imagine having come to this place where you're that desperate and you're that twisted in your imagination of who God is that you would do something like this. That's what Moab became. And that's how vile and, and terrible Moab was. And, and so there's good news this morning that there is even redemption in Bethlehem Moab. Because Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 says this, But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. And notice that this is the prophecy, so they knew where Jesus was going to be born. But notice, whose goings forth are from of old. From when? From everlasting. The good news is that Jesus was present in the Moabites' experience. The good news is that Jesus has always been present in everyone's experience and that he's present in your experience even when you don't see the way forward, even when you've made some really bad choices that have wound you up where you are today. There's redemption in Bethlehem. That's what Micah chapter 5 and verse 2 says. And we see the difference when we look at the story of Mary when she's approached by the angel and the angel says, look, you're going to have a child. And her response in verse Luke chapter 1 and verse 34 is this. Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? Now, do you see any similarities between this and what the daughters of Lot said? The daughters of Lot are like, there's no man for me. There's no possibilities. Mary has similar questions. I don't understand how this is possible. I don't know. Since I haven't known a man, how could this happen? Well. And we see that verse 31 looking back at their question. Our father is old and there is no man on the earth to come into us as is the custom of all the earth. How is this possible? Well, there's a God who makes all things possible like we learned last week. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. 
You see what the solution is. It's, it's not to go to wine. It's not to go to, to something else. And this morning, you might be sitting here thinking, well, I'm glad he's talking about alcohol because I have no issues with that. But there can be a whole lot of other things that we might choose just like the daughters of Lot. I might choose, you know, I'm not feeling so good today and I don't want to wake up and spend time with Jesus. So the first thing in the morning is I'm going to flip on the news and I'm going to listen to the news instead of spending that time with Jesus when he wakes up. It, it could be that after a long day at work, you know, I'm, I'm exhausted and so I just want to veg out. I want to, to eat as much as I can. It doesn't matter what it is. And, and, and I'm going to watch some movie that, that makes fun of the very things that Jesus died for on the cross. And there can be other things that seem a little less trifling, a little less, I should say, important, that may in the same way misdirect our lives away from the focus that they need, and that is Jesus. Because there's redemption in Jesus. There's redemption in Bethlehem. And that has to be where my focus is. And I have to be looking to the Holy Spirit as the one who fills the void in my heart and every craving of my soul. Otherwise, I'm going to wind up empty. So the angel says to Mary, look, this is how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit will come upon you. It's, it's the Holy Spirit who will do this. And the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. You can trust the Holy Spirit when you don't know the way forward. You can trust the Holy Spirit to lead you to the right spouse. You can trust the Holy Spirit to give you the strength to carry on in your life. You can trust the Holy Spirit wants to be your counselor and friend every day. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, And do not be drunk with wine, in which is dissipation. Now notice that it doesn't go on to say, so just drink a little bit. Right? That's not what it says. It says, do not be drunk with wine, in which is a total waste. Instead of that, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you have the Holy Spirit, the Bible says the fruits of the Spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. If you just take the first three of those, if you just take love, joy, and peace, if you have that overflowing in your heart and your life, you don't need anything else to satisfy you because you have all you need in Him. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the promise as much as it is a command. The angel goes on to tell Mary, for with God, nothing will be impossible. If we will only open the door, if we will only say like Mary said in verse 38, then Mary said, behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. Let it happen to me just like you promised. There's redemption in Bethlehem. There's hope for you in Bethlehem this morning. There is a Savior who was born in Bethlehem. And I know that because if you look at the story and you realize who Mary was. Now, both Mary and Joseph were of descendants of David because you find that they both are going to Bethlehem to be registered. So in the genealogy of Jesus, we looked at this last year where it lists four different women who are there in the genealogy. The first one that is listed is Tamar. Tamar was the one who seduced her father-in-law uh, to lie with her because he hadn't given her what he should have given her. And really, she was in the right first compared to him. But she has a child through her father-in-law. So you have 
cultic prostitution. You have incest going on. The second woman who's mentioned in the genealogy is mostly about men. The second one is Rahab, the prostitute, and how she sheltered the spy. We'll skip the third one. And the fourth one was David, who was pregnant, who, who impregnated uh, uh, Uriah's wife, it says. You have the story of adultery, murder. It's all in the, the, the genealogy of Jesus. And that genealogy is there to, to help us see that he's impeccable, that he he's, has the right to be the Messiah, that, that he is the one that we're looking to. And it's specifically highlighting the fact that there are broken people in this history and that his lineage, his history, his genetics are just like yours and mine. That's why Romans chapter 8 says that God did what the law could not do, weakened that it was by the flesh, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. By coming and living a loving and righteous life, having that heritage. Matthew chapter 1 verse 5, we're going to look at this part specifically. Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Rahab, or Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. And Obed begot Jesse. Friends, this is really good news this morning. Because there's not just salvation. There's not just redemption for prostitutes, for ancestral relationships. There is actually redemption for Moabites in Bethlehem. If you need to be reminded of this story, I just want to take you back to Ruth chapter 1. And in Ruth chapter 1, you have this lady who leaves Bethlehem by the name of Naomi. And she goes off to Moab. And she goes to Moab because there's not enough food in Bethlehem. And Naomi goes there, and as she's there, her husband dies. But she has two sons. And those two sons, they marry two women, uh, Orpah and Ruth. And they're married for about ten years, and they have no children in that time. They're barren. They're not experiencing the blessings of, of a fruitful life. And then both of the sons die, leaving only Naomi and Orpah and Ruth in the land of Moab. And then it tells us that, that Naomi hears the word of the Lord comes and it says, Naomi heard that the Lord had visited Bethlehem. That there was redemption in Bethlehem. And so she says, okay, I'm going back home. I'm going back to Bethlehem. And so three women begin this long and arduous journey to Bethlehem. And as they're headed to Bethlehem, she suddenly realizes, I'm asking too much of my daughter-in-law. Even though this is the custom, the way things work, the daughter-in-law should help their the, their their mom, if their husbands die, I just think this this is too much. And so she says, she says, you go back, and Orpa reluctantly goes back. And we pick up the story in Ruth chapter one and verse fifteen. Naomi said, "See, your sister-in-law has gone back. She's talking to Ruth, to her people, and to her God. Now you return after your sister-in-law. Go back to Moab. Go back to your gods. Go back there." You don't need to come to Bethlehem. You don't need to come with me. I'm not forcing you to come. And we have a God who offers us redemption at Bethlehem, but He doesn't force anybody to come. He'll do everything possible to drag you there if you let Him. But He won't force you to come to Bethlehem. Thankfully, Ruth goes on to answer in verse 16, but Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. And why? Because your God will be my God. I want Yahweh to be my God. I want that kind of God. Not a God that 
requires sacrifices of children in order to be satisfied, but a God of love who sacrificed his own son who gave him as a gift. There's redemption in Bethlehem. And so they go and they travel that 75 miles, a long descent into the Dead Sea Valley. They cross across the valley, then they, they, they ascend 3,700 feet up to the town of Bethlehem. And as they get to Bethlehem, they, they say, is this Naomi? Is this Naomi that's coming? She says, don't call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for I came out full and now I'm empty. She didn't see that there was hope. She didn't see that there was redemption. But God is about to redeem Ruth and Naomi. We pick up verse 22. It says, so Naomi returned and Ruth and the Moabites. Remember who the Moabites are. Remember where they came from. They came from an incestuous relationship in a cave where they got their father drunk. Right? So that's where they came from. And they're enemies of Israel. They're people that aren't supposed to be allowed in the assembly of God because they're seducing people. This is people that you don't want in your town. So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. And as the story goes on, she goes out to glean, and as she's gleaning, she comes in contact with this guy named Boaz, who's really kind to her. She comes back to her mother-in-law and tells her that, that look at all that, uh, that happened to me today. And her mother-in-law says, who did this? And she says, Boaz. And her mother-in-law says, that man is a close relative of ours. Ruth 2, verse 20. One of our redeemed. Goel is the word in Hebrew. Uh, uh, that close relative, he's, he's one who can redeem us, who can accomplish redemption for us. There is redemption in Bethlehem this morning. So we look on in Boaz, verse, Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And he went into her. Remember, she'd been barren before. But it says, the Lord, Yahweh, gave her conception and she bore a son. So the women come to Naomi and they find out that she's going to have a son and they say this to her. The women said to Naomi, blessed be Yahweh who has not left you this day without a redeemer. There is redemption in Bethlehem. There is a redeemer for you this morning. No matter the bad choices you may have made in your life. No matter where you have 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 come from, no matter your family heritage, there is redemption in Bethlehem for you this morning. Not just the other people sitting around here, but for you and your life, your problems, your situation. God wants to redeem you this morning. And we see that happens. I mean, it is astounding to think that God chose to use this line of people that came from a terrible mistake in a cave in the mountains to be one of the forebears, one of the, the progenitors of God Himself on planet. What an amazing, merciful, gracious God who can redeem the worst of situations and turn them around to be the biggest blessings in the entire universe. Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, We thought Salmon begot Boaz by Rahab. Now Boaz begot Obed by Ruth. Obed begot Jesse. And then we see that Jesse begot David the king. And the rest is history. Because Matthew one twenty one says that you will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. He's come to save all people. The Moabites, the Canaanites, the Israelites, and the temple tonight. He's here for you this morning. And he is your Savior. Matthew 1 verse 23 says, And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God 
with us. God is with you. That has taken place already in past history because he was born as a human being in a manger to be forever united with humanity. Do you recognize how awesome that is this morning? He is Emmanuel, God with us. Desire of Ages, page 327 says this. So the work of redeeming us, talking about this whole redemption process, and our inheritance lost through sin fell upon him who is near of kin unto us, our closest relative, our Goel, our Redeemer. It was to redeem us that he became our kinsman. That's why the manger happened. That's why Jesus was born as a human being, because he couldn't stand you being a lost Moabite, but he wanted to call you home. So the work of closer than father, mother, brother, friend, or lover is the Lord our Savior. Let that sink in this morning. Closer than father, mother, brother, friend, or lover is the Lord our Savior. He wants to be your best friend. Fear not, he says, for I have redeemed thee. I have called thee by name. Thou art mine. Since thou was precious in my sight, you are, have been honorable, and I have loved you. Therefore will I give men for you and people for your life. Isaiah 43, 1-7. Steps to Christ says it this way, page 72. When Christ took human nature upon him, he bound, that's, he tied humanity to himself by a tie of love that can never be broken by any power save the choice of man himself. Salvation has already been accomplished. There is already redemption in Bethlehem. The only thing that you can do to stop Jesus from saving you is to choose a different master. To go a different way in your life. To say, I don't want the Redeemer from Bethlehem. There's good news in Bethlehem this morning because there is a Redeemer that's why Zacharias, when he heard about this in Luke 1, 68 and 69, he said, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Say that with me one more time this morning. For with God, nothing will be impossible. So this holiday season, I want to ask you, do you want to look to Bethlehem for your redemption. Not to look to any other thing to satisfy in your life. Not to try to provide and, and create the solutions, but to say, I need a Savior. I need Jesus. I'm here as a sinner saying, I need Jesus this morning. If that's your desire this morning, I just want to invite you to pray this prayer with Mary. Just to, to, to invite God to work in your heart through His promises like He has promised to do. Let's go ahead and read this with me. If that's your desire this morning to say, Jesus, I want this to be a reality. I want you to redeem me, to actually save me out of my sins and to give me a loving life. If that's your desire. Luke 1, 38, read this with me. Then Mary said, Behold the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Make that a practice to pray that simple prayer. Let it be to me according to your word. Let it happen to me. God, I give you permission. I don't know how to change anything else, but I do know that I can give you permission. And that's all that God needs to change absolutely everything in your life. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that there is redemption in Bethlehem. Thank you that there is a Savior, a Redeemer, and His name is Jesus. And He's come with a purpose to save. Thank you that nothing is impossible for you. And 
Lord, there are people sitting here that I guarantee have sorrows in their life, struggles in their life, problems in their life that are bigger than they know how to handle. But God, today we're choosing to look to Bethlehem for redemption. We're choosing to fix our eyes on Jesus. And Father, I pray that you would prompt us in looking to you to begin to look away from anything else that distracts us from you. Impress us with what those things are. Give us a hunger for Jesus that is unquenchable this year, I pray. Father, let it be to us according to your word. Wake us up every morning with a desire to sit at your feet, to learn what a loving Savior we have. Get our attention at noon. Get our attention at night before we go to sleep. Lord, captivate us with Jesus. Help us to know that we need redemption. And may we know that it has already been provided in Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I pray.